It's good to be in the house of God. No better place to be this morning. Thank God we have feet. Most of us have a car. We have arms. We have voices. We can be here to worship a living God. A lot of people don't have all those things. And some of them still praise and worship God. What a blessed people we are. You know, this Thursday is Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving in advance. The 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, by proclamation of the president, declared this day to be a national day of giving thanks to God. Wow, how far we've come from then. How far? Let me reword that, how far we have fallen from then. But thank God we can still come together with our families on Thursday and eat turkey and watch football. No, give thanks to God and maybe eat a little bit unless you signed up to fast that day. Praise the Lord. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. It is good to stop, pause, remember all that he's done for us and be thankful to God. Amen? Um, The pot is stirring. God is stirring in our midst. How many of you feel that? There's something stirring. God is up to something. There, there's, I feel something in the wind. I just believe that God is about to breathe some new things into us. And that's one reason why you see these sheets that are coming around. We're serious. We need to step up our prayer. We need to step up our fasting. We need to step up a lot of things to get in line with God and his program for these last days. And I have a message this morning that I believe is going to encourage you. And I guarantee you it's already encouraged me, so hopefully it'll have the same effect on you. And we often, in these days in which we live, we need encouragement. Do I have an amen? Praise the Lord. Okay. Psalm 33, we're going to read from verse 6 all the way down to verse 11. And the title of my message today is God's Plans Stand Firm Forever. Say that with me. God's plans stand firm forever. I don't know about you, but I'm already starting to get encouraged. There's a lot of things that aren't going to stand forever. There's a lot of things that are crumbling before our very eyes, but God's plans are not one of them. Read with me, Psalm 33, beginning at verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Praise God. Praise God. I don't know about you, but I am glad I'm on the winning team. Some of you aren't with me yet. I am glad I'm on his team because he always wins, he never loses, he's never made a mistake, he is always going to get his way. You hear me? The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. 
No wonder you hear us talking all the time from this pulpit. Surrender to God. Do God's will. Find out what his plan for your life is. Because, man, when you get plugged into the plan and purpose of God, no demon, no power in hell, no darkness, no sickness, no government, no law can stop you. When you are in the will of God, my friend, all of heaven is backing you up. Armies of angels all around you. The power of the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And the word of the Lord that created the heavens and the earth is in your mouth and in my mouth. Woo! The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. But go back to the previous verse. We think these are the things that are going to stand. Verse 10. The plans of the nations. The purposes of the peoples. Governments, big shots, powerful people, laws and decrees made by man. What does it say? The Lord will foil them. He will thwart their purposes. And we are seeing that with our very eyes day in and day out. God is bringing down all the greatness of man, all the plans of man, all the great projects of man. He's bringing them down. And these last days, what will be exalted is the plan of God, the purpose of God, the will of God. And if you want to start praying and know that your prayers are going to get answered, just start with this one. Lord, have your way in my life. Have your way in my life. Use me, send me, direct me, do whatever you want with my life, but let your will be done in me. And man, a confidence, an assurance, a strength comes into your life that will come no other way. There's no substitute for that. There's a confidence that comes when you know you are in his plan and his purpose. A verse I want us to read along with this the, the, the Lord gave me this verse a couple of months ago, and I, I knew it was going to be a sermon one of these days. And I've just, I, I don't know, I've gotten a lot of miles out of this verse, if you know what I'm talking about. I put it to memory, and man, it has just been a blessing in my life. Proverbs 21, verse 30. Ready? Read it with me. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. You know I'm going to do this. What does no mean? No wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. I like that. I like that. You know, in the early church, the apostles were being persecuted. They were beaten. They were locked up and put in jail. And they they faced all kinds of things for, for preaching the gospel and living the Christian life. And in Acts 5, there's one occasion where they were trying to decide what to do with these guys. They just couldn't seem to shut them up. They'd lock them up in jail, and as soon as they threatened them and let them out, they'd be preaching again, and revival would break out in some other part of the city. They just didn't know what to do with them. So in Acts 5, they're having kind of a powwow to decide what they're going to do with these apostles. And a very wise Jewish leader named Gamaliel, he was actually Paul's teacher and mentor, the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian. And he stands up and he gives some real wise counsel to the Jewish people, starting in Acts 5.38. 
we do well to pay attention to his advice. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. He's talking about Peter, James, John, the apostles. Leave them alone. Let them go. They'd already locked them up once. Leave them alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. Stop there. Read that last sentence slowly with me. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. Hands up all those that want to invest their time, their life, their energy, their resources in plans that are of human origin. Mine's not up. I'm just showing you what you need to do if you want to put it up. Been there, done that. I got 40 years of experience, and sadly, many of those 40 years, I've tested and proven what he's saying is true. You can come up with grand plans, great purposes, wonderful activities. And you know what? If they're of human origin, they come to zero, zero, less than zero. They fail. They're not of any eternal value. We're talking this morning about a plan that's going to stand forever. God's plans stand firm forever. Human plans, human purposes, human activities come to nothing. Look at the next verse. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. If it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. You know, from Genesis to Revelation, there's a clear record for us of many, many times that evil men, evil nations, Evil forces have risen up against God, against his purpose, and against his people. And from Genesis to Revelation, we see the same response every single time. God always wins, they always lose. Ask Pharaoh. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. Ask Herod. You can go right down the list. Ask any of the ones in the Bible that tried to rise up against God's plan and God's purpose. They were not fighting against men. They were fighting against God. And let me tell you something. God can fight real well. God is a mighty warrior. He's never lost a game. He's never lost a match. And he doesn't plan on it. And when you and I get plugged into God, when we really get serious about moving with God and his program and his plan, and this takes time, it takes effort, it takes fasting, it takes prayer, it takes, it takes getting into the word of God to find out what his plan is. But once you and I get plugged into the purpose of God, this is what we can look forward to. People may rise up against us. Demonic forces may try to stop us, but they will not be able to stop these men and women. They will only be fighting against God. With that as an intro, I want to take you to one of the most interesting books of the Bible. 
It's unique in a number of ways, and it's going to demonstrate this to us in a very powerful way. I want you to turn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. If you've studied the book of Esther or heard us speak on it before, there are a couple of very unique things about the book of Esther. Never once in the book is God mentioned. You think, well, what's that doing in the Bible? They need to rip that out. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have said that. They said we should remove the book of Esther because God's not mentioned. Never once in the book of Esther is prayer mentioned. There's no mention of worship in the book of Esther. There's no mention of a temple in the book of Esther. But for me, the most glaring thing about the book of Esther, God is never mentioned. Very interesting. And it takes place in a very dark time in Israel's history. Because of their sin and their rebellion and disregarding repeated warnings from prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, finally, God sent the Babylonians to Jerusalem. They burned the city to the ground, killed most of the Jews, and then took a number of them captives back to Babylon. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in that company who were taken as exiles to Babylon. And eventually, when you read through the book of Daniel, there's a transfer of power from Babylon to Medo-Persia, or sometimes people just refer to it as Persia. But Persia conquered Babylon after Babylon had conquered Jerusalem. And somewhere in the midst of all that confusion, we've got Jews that survived Nebuchadnezzar's attack on Jerusalem, and they've been scattered. For many, many years, they've been away from the land of Judah. They've had no temple, no priests, no sacrifices, no real religious life. And yet, even as they were scattered to all these far distant lands, they have retained and maintained that Jewish identity. And whoever wrote the book of Esther, they're not sure who wrote it, they were obviously Jewish. And for whatever reasons, they deliberately left God out of the whole story. And one of the primary purposes for the book of Esther is not only to tell a story, but it was to establish the celebration of a national holiday for the Jewish people called Purim, a two-day holiday that's normally in, eight, uh, I'm sorry, in February or March in our calendar. It depends on the Jewish calendar exactly when they celebrate it. But it established the celebration of Purim. And we'll come to that. But the interesting thing about the book of Esther is with this kind of a dark background that the Jews are now in exile, they're really being punished for their disobedience, and God has allowed them to be scattered to the wind, and yet we see these little pockets of Jews that have remained faithful to their God, and they've maintained that that zeal, and that national identity as Israelites. And the amazing thing to me, and I'll say this right up front in case you fall asleep and miss everything else I'm going to say today, the amazing thing to me about the book of Esther, even though God is never mentioned, we see his hand moving throughout the whole book. I like that. 
Because, you know, that's more like our daily life. God doesn't come at 6 o'clock in the morning and say, okay, I'm God, I'm going to be wearing a badge so you can follow me all day long, and whenever I speak, I'm going to tell you it's God talking to you. That's not the way God works. God likes to remain hidden behind the scenes, but always, always, always working out his plan because his plan must stand forever. And so as we look a little more closely in the book of Esther, even though God's not mentioned, man, you can see him all over this story. And when you look at your own life, you should have the same experience. You can trace God's hand all throughout your life. And it may not have been things that you planned for, probably not. They may have been things that you called coincidences, luck, bad luck, chance. But I believe the Holy Spirit can bring us to a place of understanding that there are no coincidences. There are no bad lucks or good lucks. There's a God, a sovereign God, who is in control of every atom, every electron. He's in charge of his universe. And I'm getting ahead of my story, but it's interesting to tell you this up front. The celebration of Purim, it's from a Hebrew word, P-U-R, poor. And Purim is the plural of poor. It means lots, L-O-T-S. And you remember in the Old Testament, they would cast lots, like we flip a coin or we roll dice. It was, it was something that was done just randomly as a chance way of making some kind of a selection. How interesting that this whole book is centered around a celebration that's called the lots or chance or coincidence. And yet the whole purpose of the book is to show that there are no chances. There are no coincidences. There's no such thing as luck. There's a hidden God, often unseen, who's controlling every detail of the story. Wow. I don't know if any of you have ever attended a Jewish Purim service. I have. It's very interesting. They actually replay the whole story of Esther. And I'm, again, I'm getting way ahead of my story. But when they come to the evil character in the story, Haman, they all bang their feet on the ground and they shake rattles and make all kinds of noise and they boo whenever his name is mentioned. And the whole crowd gets involved from beginning to end, as this whole story is told. All right. In Esther, chapter 3, is where we first find this concept of the poor, the lot being cast. And we're going to come back and get more of the details on this, but this evil man, Haman, who hated the Jews, he hated God's people, and he forms a murderous plot to destroy all of the Jews, he has lots cast to select the day on which they're going to be destroyed. Okay? It's kind of like, Fauci, when do you want to die? And he says, roll the dice. <laughs> okay. Okay, March 12th. It, that's what they were doing here. And so in, Mar- in Esther 3, verse 7, 
is where this term is first introduced. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, Esther 3, verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan. See, they had Nisans back then, brother. They cast the poor, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman, to select a day and a month. And you have to read the whole story, but the day and the month they're selecting is the day to annihilate all of the Jews. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Okay, so they flipped the coin, they rolled the dice, they cast straws, and now, by random chance, they have their date when the Jews' destiny is sealed. All right? But later on in Esther, and again, I'm jumping around. We're going to come back and do this properly from chapter 1, but I'm just kind of giving you the bookends here. In Esther 9, toward the end of the whole story, is where you read about the establishment of this Purim celebration, an annual celebration to remember the great victory. And again, it doesn't mention God. It's just to remember the great victory that they experienced. And so in Esther 9, verse 23, so the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word poor, remember it means lot or chance, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. Next verse. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. Very interesting. Now, when you flip a coin, when you roll dice... When you cast lots, it's all chance, right? Wrong. Wrong. I'll prove it to you. Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. The coin is flipped. The dice are rolled. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. You know I'm going to do this. What's every mean? You mean every time I flip the coin... God is going to determine whether it's a heads or tails? Yes, that's what it says. So even Haman's casting of the lots, the Purim, to decide the day on which the Jews were to be put to death, God decided on that day. Amazing. The lot is cast, but it's every decision is from the Lord. 
And I guarantee you, the more closely you study the book of Esther, the more you're going to notice all kinds of strange coincidences that aren't coincidences because it's God orchestrating his plan. And when it seems to reach the darkest and the most hopeless point, that's when God intervenes. And that's the storyline of the Bible. Just as the Israelites are coming to the Red Sea and Pharaoh and all of his army is behind them, it looks like, man, this is it. God's plan is finished. Because if all these Jews die, no more plan. God purposed and planned and spelled it out clearly in his word. He was going to bring forth salvation. He was going to bring forth an answer for what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And it was decreed that it would come through the Jewish people. And as that prophecy developed, it became even more clear that it had to come through the house and the line of David. It had to come through the tribe of Judah, a savior. Pretty soon we're going to be celebrating the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, the city of David. Hello? It had to come through David. It had to come through Judah. It had to take place in Bethlehem. How many times evil men and evil nations rose up to try to extinguish the Jewish people? Have they ever succeeded? Did Pharaoh succeed? Did Nebuchadnezzar succeed? Did Hitler succeed? Nope. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. And there are some interesting parallels, and I'm not going to get into this today, but if you're familiar with the story of Joseph in Genesis, there are a lot of interesting parallels between that story and the one that's chronicled for us in the book of Esther. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to go there. All right, Esther 1. One of the first of many coincidences that are recorded for us in this story, the story begins presenting to us a very rich, a very powerful king named Xerxes. He was the king of Persia, and he had 127 provinces that were all a part of his empire. Very powerful, extremely wealthy. In chapter 1... We're not going to go into all the details, but it talks about this great banquet that he threw. He loved to party, and he spared no expense. They had golden goblets, wine, food, everything. Not for a day. This went on day after day after day, just celebrating and showing off all the splendor and wealth and power of his kingdom. And finally... On the last day of the big banquet, we're told in chapter 10 and onwards that he wanted the queen, his wife, Queen Vashti, to come to his party. You see, she was having her own party. (laughs) While all this is going on, she's having her own banquet. And so he sends word for the queen to come and join him at his party because he wants to show off how beautiful the queen was. I mean, she must have been very, very beautiful, probably covered with jewels and gold and you name it. They had it. There's a problem. She doesn't want to come. I ain't coming to your party. I got my own party. Just like that, she refused to come. And so King Xerxes calls in all of his advisors and tells them what's going on. They say, what should we do? And they basically told him, you need to get rid of her. 
Because if you allow her to be rebellious and disobedient like that, all the other women in the kingdom are going to rebel against their husbands and we're going to have a big mess. So he puts out Queen Vashti. She's removed from being queen. She's removed completely from the king's life. And, okay, so what? The plot begins to thicken. Now they're going to have a beauty contest to select the new queen. And they go through this elaborate process. Word is sent out into all 127 provinces to bring all the most beautiful girls from all over the kingdom, and we're going to find a new queen, okay? This isn't just Miss America for one day. This is to become the queen for this dude who's got all this money and all this power. And so they bring in all these women... And one of them happens to be a little Jewish orphan girl named Hadassah. That's her Jewish name, but we know her better as Esther. And we're told just a little bit about Esther in chapter 2. And we're told a little bit about another important character in our story. Esther chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Esther 2. And you can go home and read the whole story for yourself. But it says there was in the citadel of Susa, that's in Persia, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. He's really the hero of the whole story. Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Next verse. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Okay, we've got a couple more things happening here by coincidence. Okay? By coincidence. We have a beautiful Jewish girl who's entering this beauty contest. And we're also told something very important about her. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. But she lost her father and mother. Mother and father died. And so her cousin, Mordecai, just happened to be the one who adopts her and raises her. And as we're going to learn, he was a man of exceedingly high character, integrity, and he was a real Jewish man. He really was firm in his Jewish faith. And so that's sort of the background now. And if you read through chapter 2, you read through the whole process that they went through in this beauty contest, and you can probably guess who wins the contest. Esther. Just by coincidence, right? Just by coincidence that a little Jewish orphan girl who's been displaced from her homeland is in this far distant country of Persia and a Persian king. Don't you think he would have been looking for a Persian girl to be his wife? Not a Jewish girl? And out of all the beautiful women in the kingdom, she is the one who's favored. She is the one who's selected. Ah, It's a touching story, right? But it ain't over yet. Because then we come to chapter 3 and enter our next character, Haman. 
Boo! Esther 3, starting at verse 1. After these events, after the whole beauty contest, after Esther has become queen, and actually most historians say about three or four years have passed with Esther now being queen, King Xerxes, and we're not told the reason why for this either, but he just happens by coincidence to honor this man Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Remember that because we're going to come back to that. Elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Very powerful man. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. Can you imagine? What a great man he was. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Just stop there. Does that remind you of anyone else in the Bible? How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to this horrendous 90-foot statue? They refused to bow down, even though it meant going into the fiery furnace. Friends, we must pray for the spirit of Mordecai to come into us. A boldness, a conviction to stand for the Lord. Not to bow down to any demon, not to bow down to any false god or any lie of the devil, not to bow down to any government or anything that's not of God. He refused to kneel down. All he had to do was say, well, I'm not really doing it in my heart, but I'm just going to do it so I don't get into trouble. That's all he had to do, and we wouldn't have the rest of this story. Because this is what caused the whole problem right here. Read it again. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. That's what caused the whole problem. And sometimes you can almost hear the devil saying, just bow down. Just bow down. Just compromise. You know, I could have a whole lot more friends today if all I would do is compromise. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Sometimes I hear the devil whispering that to me. You don't have very many friends, Wayne. You can have a lot more friends if you would just embrace homosexuality, embrace drugs, embrace drunkenness, embrace fornication, embrace immorality, embrace lying, embrace greed. Where are you going to stop? Embrace murder? He would not kneel down or pay him honor. Next verse. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for he had told them he was a Jew. Hmm. Interesting point. Up until now, Mordecai has told his cousin Esther, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. It's a secret. The king doesn't know that his wife is a Jew. No one in the royal court knows this. Only Mordecai knows that Esther's a Jew, but everybody knows Mordecai is a Jew because it's no secret. He can't keep it secret. And now they're going and tattletailing. This guy won't bow down to you, Haman. What are you going to do with him? We saw him again today. He didn't bow down to you. What's going to happen to him? Kind of tells me that they didn't really like bowing down to him either. Guy was so arrogant, so proud, and we'll see that later in the story. Next verse. 
when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, notice that's the key, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom. Somebody help me here. Who inspired Haman with that kind of hatred? The same devil that inspired Pharaoh? The same devil that inspired Hitler? The same devil that is fighting against you and me because he can't stand to see God's will being done. And he knows these Jewish people are key to the plan of God standing firm forever. So now he's not just interested in killing Mordecai, he wants to kill all of the Jews. And we read from verse 7 where they cast the poor and they selected the day when all the Jewish people are going to be annihilated. Now, in Esther 4, starting with verse 1, this decree has by now been sent out into all the provinces. On such and such a day, on such and such a month, 